When a baby comes out of the womb, we certainly don't expect him or her to know what, uh, say, an apple is. But soon enough, mama or daddy will show him an apple. Maybe the child will associate the word for apple with the fruit. And eventually, he or she will learn that uh, this specific object, the apple, is that kind of fruit. The baby is uh, still at the stage of life when he or she is learning language and all they need to do is just be around people who are speaking. Babies or toddlers are regular little language learning machines. They soak up the words spoken around them. Later in life, we expand our vocabulary and hopefully our ability to communicate by studying or being exposed to words and often guessing what a word means, largely through context. Sometimes our hunch is right. Sometimes it's completely off base. Well, when I first heard the word uncanny, I should have stopped right there and looked it up in a dictionary. You see, for some reason, I have no idea why, I uh, might hear somebody say about a situation, that really is uncanny. And I thought they meant that the situation was funny. I thought that if something was uncanny, that meant it was funny. And that's what I thought for years. But boy, was I wrong. Actually, uncanny means strange or mysterious, sometimes ghostly or even having a supernatural characteristic to it. And sometimes uncanny means what excites fear. You get what I mean. And the opposite of uncanny is ordinary. So remember, the basic meaning of uncanny is strange or mysterious, often supernatural. Understanding the concept of the uncanny is key to understanding Edgar Poe's works. He certainly did not concentrate on the ordinary and was a master at being able to tap into our uncanny sides. My name is George Bartley, and this is episode number 100 of Celebrate Poe, a bit of a milestone. Now, today I want to skip the largely chronological structure of this podcast that I've been trying to follow, using Edgar Poe's life as a kind of timeline to go along with, but um, an overall look at the concept of the uncanny, especially as it relates to Edgar Poe. Perhaps the first time young Edgar experienced the uncanny in a really substantial way um, was the death of his mother, a traumatic event that he certainly didn't understand. And I can't help but feel uh, that the travels through the forests at night during the Allen's summer vacations to White Sulphur Springs were definitely terrifying to a young child and probably almost supernatural. We'll never know for sure, but uh, the spooky tales that were told by the African-American slaves that were part of the Allen household most likely also spoke to the imagination of the young Poe. Now, to really get into the concept of the uncanny in Edgar Poe, it's helpful to look back at what are called Gothic stories. 
Now, Gothic stories have lots of gloomy anxieties and are not written to make you believe that everything is all right with the world. But they're written to develop almost a sense of anxiety and even fear. Uh, You might have doppelgangers in a work, a theme in many movies, and we'll be going into that later, such as The Double with Jesse Eisenberg, Think the Social Network, and in books such as The Double by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Or a work might have a beautiful dead woman, dead in quotation marks, uh, who is buried alive. Think Madeline Usher or many of Poe's heroines. Or you might have ghosts or mad narrators such as in The Telltale Heart. Edgar Poe was certainly familiar with the Gothic genre and took it to new heights. Many writers have tried to explain the concept of the uncanny, but perhaps none more articulately than Sigmund Freud. The subject of the uncanny is undoubtedly related to what is frightening, to what arouses dread and horror. Equally certainly, too, the word is not always used in a clearly definable sense, so that it tends to coincide with what excites fear in general. Yet, we may expect that a special core of feeling is present which justifies the use of a special conceptual term. One is curious to know what this common core is which allows us to distinguish as uncanny certain things which lie within the field of what is frightening. And Freud has some interesting observations to make about our willingness to accept uncanny characters and situations. He writes, The souls in Dante's Inferno or the supernatural apparitions in Shakespeare's Hamlet, Macbeth, or Julius Caesar may be gloomy and terrible enough, but they're they are no more really uncanny than Homer's jovial world of gods. We adapt our judgment to the imaginary reality imposed on us by the writer and regard souls, spirits, and ghosts as though their existence had the same validity as our own has in material reality. I know that hocus-pocus psychological jargon can be very difficult to wrap your head around, but here I think Freud is comparatively straightforward compared to some of his hard-to-read prose. For a modern-day example, illustrating Freud's ideas, just look at the popularity of Stephen King. Now, early Gothic novelists often set their novels in what we consider remote times, such as the Middle Ages. The pre-Romantics, and here I'm talking about writers before Blake, Shelley, and Byron, for example, the pre-Romantics often enjoyed setting their scenes in a churchyard or maybe a graveyard. I mean, here was a place where people could meditate on life and death. So, if you're in a graveyard, it was only natural for that character to think about uncanny forces, such as ghosts, spirits, or maybe even blazing fires that have imagined connections to life and death. Many people have a complete, well, I'd say maybe most people have, in some degree, degree, a complete inability to accept death. And uncanny experiences often speak of the presence of ghosts or spirits, 
creatures that can live forever. And just that feeling of whether a spirit or character is alive or dead can produce a sense of the uncanny. Earlier this week, uh, the great Betty White died and years ago said, almost jokingly, that when she died, she would know the secret, that no one living can know the secret. But she would finally know the secret that we all don't know yet. Man has asked uncanny beliefs to deal with that secret that no one truly understands as well as the inevitability of death. Now, Poe had written several classic stories that dealt with uncanny situations during the early portion of his writing career, such as Berenice and Morella. But I feel he really didn't hit his stride until about 1839. In September of that year, he wrote The Fall of the House of Usher for Burton's magazine. Now, our frequent inability to accept death can result in an uncanny feeling that at the end of a person's life, we subconsciously believe that that individual is not really dead and is in a state of existence between life and death. In other words, a longing and refusal to accept death. We might consciously know that such and such is true or false, but you can't control the subconscious. This is very well illustrated in the fall of the House of Usher in the half-alive, half-dead state of Madeline Usher. I know this might sound weird, but the concept of the uncanny can also be expressed in architecture. Huge buildings with narrow corridors, hidden chambers, and winding stair steps, as though the house is mentally ill and controlled by evil forces. The feeling of the uncanny increases in a story when the character feels that, for example, that house might have what might be called a personality. The horrible sense that inanimate objects have become animated. The sense of fear when, when a character believes that a house might have a personality or soul and is possessed by a ghost or reacts at the behest of evil forces. In the first paragraph of The Fall of the House of Usher, Poe writes, for example, about the windows as though they were eyes, and The Fall of the House of Usher has a double meaning, the decline and destruction of a home, as well as the decline and destruction of the last surviving members of the Usher family. In The Fall of the House of Usher, the twins Roderick and Madeline Usher are like doubles or doppelgangers of each other. In this case, they are two distinct individuals, but are really abnormally, abnormally connected to each other, as though neither of them can live without the other. So when Roderick confronts his double Madeline, it's as though he's confronting himself. This naturally results in a great deal of anxiety that just doesn't end well. He hears strange noises in the house and is terrified. Then he announces that the sounds coming from the tomb in the house are from Madeline, and they buried her alive, and now she's trying to escape. Celebrate Poe will look at the fall of the House of Usher in far more detail later. 
I think it's one of Poe's best tales. And I think it's interesting that uh, apparently Netflix is slated to produce an eight-episode version of The Fall of the House of Usher. It could be very interesting. But back to Burton's magazine and their publication of The Fall of the House of Usher. This is not the Netflix version. Um, Less than approximately after Usher was published, Burton's magazine published another story by Poe that is a great example of the uncanny, William Wilson. Celebrate Poe touched on the first part of this story in an episode last year, but I'm going to come back to the latter part of the story and the use of the uncanny in William Wilson. The story is far more complex than I originally thought. So the next episode, or maybe even two episodes, are going to concentrate on uh, William Wilson. And in this section, uh, or the next section, uh, the emphasis will be on, quote, was Poe abused, unquote. Now, four years later, Edgar Poe wrote The Tell-Tale Heart for the Pioneer. And for the rest of this episode, I'd like to talk about some of the uncanny elements of The Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart is my favorite Poe story, and I could talk for hours about its complexities, but I won't do that to you. The story begins... True. Nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how Calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, if you have never heard this story before, you might give the narrator the benefit of the doubt when he starts out saying that everything is true that he is nervous, but definitely not mad. After all, he can see all things in heaven and earth. Must get kind of noisy with all those sounds, and would be hard to distinguish one, too. Anyway, he uses the phrase, very, very dreadfully nervous. I think that's interesting. Let me take a little sidebar here regarding the filmmaker Mel Brooks, of all people. Apparently, Mel Brooks is actually a very serious individual, a very nice but very intellectual individual, someone who is constantly reading all kinds of great literature. In the movie High Anxiety, for example, 
a comedy about mental illness and a lot funnier than it might sound, the lead characters visit an asylum. The hospital has a huge sign at the entrance that says, Home for the Very, Very Dreadfully Nervous, straight out of Poe. The, the kind of almost tasteless literary reference that Mel Brooks would use. But I digress. The narrator of Poe's story says that he has very sharp senses and can tell us his story in a very honest and logical manner. But it becomes obvious as the story continues that he is suffering and, and even violent. Poe doesn't tell us if the narrator is living with his father, relative, friend, or servant. In fact, a group in Baltimore did a version of the Telltale Heart where all the characters were gay males, and that interpretation certainly works. Though in Poe's day, I doubt the word gay would be used except to mean happy. Perhaps they use words like special friend. I have even seen a great version where the narrator is a lady. The lady, the actress, implied that she had been abused, or at least she gave that impression. And it was very, very powerful. One of the great things about Poe is that he usually leaves his works open to universal interpretation. Now, the narrator states that the reason he has to kill the old man is because of the old man's eye. Has the old man seen the narrator doing something that the narrator is ashamed of? Is it a sexual act? Does the eye have some kind of imagined power that terrifies the narrator? Poe never specifically tells us, but we do know that the narrator gains some kind of joy or satisfaction in killing the old man, at least initially. In fact, after he kills the old man, he's proud of his action, and he proceeds to try and hide the body. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismember the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been much too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> so the narrator appears very satisfied that the room is clean. Several officers come, and the narrator tries to act calmly. It seems doubtful that the officers would have suspected anything at this point. You see, the police are there simply because a neighbor reported a noise. The narrator continues, I smiled, for what did I now to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was mine own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. 
In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I, myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. Now, either the narrator is experiencing his own heartbeat as the heartbeat of the old man, or there's some kind of supernatural occurrence where the body has come back to life or never really died, and the narrator hears the actual heartbeat of the old man. Actually, such uncanny experiences were popular with Victorian audiences. The narrator is now at a complete loss regarding what to do. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now again hark louder, 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 louder. Not surprisingly, Poe doesn't tell us exactly what's happening and leaves a great deal open to interpretation. That makes the events even more uncanny. Finally, the narrator confesses to the crime. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. I think this is one of the best examples of the uncanny at work in Poe. A narrator who initially believes he is quite rational and even superior to other individuals. He gradually lets us know that, unknown to him, 
his thoughts and actions are becoming increasingly uncanny as he descends further and further into madness. Poe certainly had his share of madmen and a few madwomen in his works. It could be said that such characters were frequently out of sync with the rest of society. They acted in reaction to universal forces and often felt their irrational actions were entirely reasonable. And I haven't even mentioned the pit and the pendulum. Edgar Allan Poe developed characters whose uncanny actions frequently evoked overwhelming fear in the reader. In conclusion, this will not be the last time that Celebrate Poe looks at the concept of the uncanny in the writer, a concept that runs through much of Poe's work, and we will see it over and over again. Now, join Celebrate Poe for episode 101 to be released Monday, January the 10th at midnight. This episode is a re-examination of William Wilson and focuses on the possible psychological damage that Poe might have experienced at boarding school. The episode, Was Poe Abused?, deals with what might be considered unpleasant subject matter, but um, possible physical molestation that could very well be a contributing factor in forming Poe's often fatalistic attitude towards life. Was Poe Abused? is an episode you won't want to miss. Sources for this episode include The Uncanny by Sigmund Freud, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by Arthur Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight Thomas and David K. Jackson, The Reason for the Darkness of the Night by John Tresh, Poe in Place by Philip Edward Phillips, The Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe by Edgar Allan Poe, edited by Thomas Alive Mabbitt, and lectures by Dr. Bocas Barbala at Partium Christian University in Oradea, Romania. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.